If you can come in and tick the boxes, there are now guidelines for the steps one has to take, but if you tick those boxes, you can limit your liability prior to purchasing a property and have some comfort going in that you won't be inheriting um, a significant environmental liability related to a cleanup. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be continuing our series on environmental law where we cover cradle-to-grave treatment of chemicals and our laws in the United States on environmental biology. So today we turn our attention to CERCLA. According to the EPA, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act of 1980, also known as CERCLA or Superfund, provides a federal superfund amount of money to clean up uncontrolled or abandoned hazardous waste sites as well as accidents, spills, and other emergency releases of pollutants and contaminants into the environment. Through CERCLA, the United States Environmental Protection Agency was given power to seek out those parties responsible for any release and assure their cooperation in the cleanup, which basically means get out your checkbook. And in this episode, we're going to be spotlighting CERCLA and discussing the origin, its history, purpose, and impact. To speak more on this topic, our guest today is Professor of Environmental Law at the Elizabeth Hobbs School of Law at Pace University, Katrina fisher Q. Professor Q's scholarship focuses on climate change and sustainability. She is the co-editor of The Law of Adaptation to Climate Change, the United States, and International Aspects. Before entering academia, Professor Q worked in the environmental and litigation practice groups in the New York office of Arnold and Porter LLP, and she also served as an advisor on natural resource policy in the United States Senate and was a law clerk in the Fourth Circuit. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Tell us how you got involved in environmental law in the first place. Well, I think um, it mostly boils down to the fact that we didn't have a ton of money when I was growing up and going outside, going to state parks, national parks was free. So we did, we did a lot of that. And I became a runner and spent a lot of hours running in the hills outside of Boise, which is where I spent part of my growing up. And spent one summer in Boulder, Colorado, primarily because I wanted to be running in the hills of Boulder, Colorado. And the only thing I could find to do that summer was to knock on doors for the PERGs uh, as part of an environmental campaign they were doing. And so that is, when I think back, probably what got me headed down, headed down the path to environmental law. And then, of course, having some wonderful professors and mentors in law school, I ended up being a teaching and research assistant for Dan Esty, one of my law school environmental law professors, and that was transformative for me. Well, how did CERCLA first get started? In fact, we should probably identify what it stands for. Comprehensive, oh, I'm going to mess it up because I don't remember it. I, I don't remember. We always we always just refer to it as, uh, as CERCLA. Here it is, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. <laughs> And I, you know, when you think about how CERCLA got started, I think it's um, useful to remind ourselves that 
there's been a significant change in our domestic waste streams. So it's kind of kind of get a chuckle thinking back in the 19th century, one of the big waste problems New York City had was it had so much horse pucky on its streets, they had to get rid of it all. So that was, I think, the biggest part of their waste stream. And for a while, they could sell it to people as fertilizer, and then nobody wanted it as fertilizer, and they had to start paying to dispose of it. But I think CERCLA's importance probably heralds back to a really significant change in our waste stream after World War II and the rise of the petrochemical industry. Um, and so I think, you know, at, at that time, the type of waste that we were dealing with in the United States became much more heavily chemical and potentially hazardous. And the volume significantly rose after World War II. So I, I think part of how, how do we end up with CERCLA, part of that is recognizing that we found ourselves, you know, when we first, when our waste stream first changed, we kind of continued with a just out of sight, out of mind approach to disposal. So there were very few controls on the disposal of waste, including this new stream of much more toxic, hazardous, hazardous waste produced by the petrochemical industry after World War II. And um, that's kind of important context for understanding why it became so important um, to have a system for cleaning up old waste sites. And it's because we'd created a lot of waste sites because we kind of blundered into disposal of this type of material. Now, a lot of people think that Superfund first got started or the CERCLA statutes were first passed in the early 70s in response to the Love Canal situation, but it was a long time coming, 1980 before it was passed. What was the gap between, as you mentioned, in the 40s to the 80s? What happened that generated CERCLA? Why did it get passed? Well, if I, I think in part because for a while it was out of sight, out of mind, and it, and it took a little while for all the, the waste that we had, chemical waste we'd been dumping to start uh, popping up and causing causing problems. And, you know, I, I do have the sense that when the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act was adopted, initially there was a view that, oh, great, we're done, dust our hands, right? We've now got in place this cradle-to-grave system to make sure that we are identifying and properly disposing of hazardous waste. But of course, the, you know, despite the fact that RICRA does have some provisions that can allow for cleanup of, of um, where material poses an imminent and substantial endangerment, the Love Canal situation, I think, did highlight the fact that we had a legacy of contaminated sites where no amount of prospective care in dealing with hazardous waste going forward was going to really reach back and address those old sites. And so CERCLA, I think, was enacted in 1980. And I think it does surprise people to learn that it was um, enacted after RICRA. But I think it was almost like a, a, a cleanup job. Or I'm, That's a horrible book. <laughs> it was almost, I didn't mean that. <laughs> but a realization that there was a, a gap that had been left unfilled and that we did have this legacy of contaminated sites that were created by a period where there just simply weren't controls in place with respect to the disposal of these types of substances. And how does CERCLA go about enforcing liability? Who does it make liable for this cleanup? And why did Congress choose to, and I'll kind of pre give you some foreshadowing for your answer, but why did Congress choose to make such a wide swath of people liable for cleanup? 
So CERCLA identifies a group of entities that CERCLA parlance refers to as potentially responsible parties who can be held legally responsible for contributing to cleanup costs at a, at a site. In terms of where did this idea come from, it, it's actually, although CERCLA is kind of a newer in time environmental statute heralding from 1980, the roots of CERCLA really lie in our history of common law liability for abnormally dangerous activities. And pulling from that, the statute makes this group of potentially responsible parties jointly, strictly, and severally liable at sites which they've contributed substances. The groups of potentially responsible parties, so you've got current owners and operators, owners and operators at the time of disposal, and um, let's Past see. Past owners, rangers, oh, right. transporters. <laughs> transporters. Yeah. yeah, those owners at the time of disposal. In terms of why cast the net so wide, I think part of the reason was because if you think about a site, a contaminated site, oftentimes it will have a large mixture of wastes from multiple sources that have been contributed over a long period of time. And in addition, because by the time CERCLA was adopted, we were dealing with a long history of irresponsible I don't want to say irresponsible, but uncontrolled, essentially, dumping. You're going to have a fair number of entities that are defunct, that you can't find, that you might struggle to recreate the records to understand who dumped and in what volumes. So I think it's partly a recognition of the reality of the difficulty of historically reconstructing in a very precise way responsibility for contamination at a site. And of course, there are multiple other complexities, including the the fact that some substances disposed of at a site might be, you know, much more toxic than others. Some may have synergistic effects when they combine, et cetera. Um, So had the, the categories been defined more narrowly or the requirements to establish liability been much higher, it might have been very difficult to get private um, contribution to site cleanup at all. And I think probably the large price tag and the difficulty of funding that uh, publicly has to be considered as well. Right. Well, Katie, at this time, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu slash interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems. 
like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Professor of Law Katrina Q from Elizabeth Hobbs School of Law at Pace University. Katie, you mentioned RICRA and CERCLA. What's the difference between the two? So there's a little bit of overlap, but the primary difference between the two is you can think of RICRA as a set of mandatory best practices for how you handle these types of substances today going forward. Requirements that you properly categorize um, or characterize waste and um, make sure that if it bears certain attributes or is um, listed as a hazardous waste, that it's disposed of in very specific ways that we're comfortable will prevent it from contaminating environmental media going forward. You can think of CERCLA as a look-back mechanism, which is to say both to recognize the fact that there was a period when RICRA wasn't in place, and as a result, there are sites that are contaminated that have to be cleaned up. You can also understand CERCLA very much as being complementary to RICRA. We all know that enforcement is never perfect. So the fact that someone who improperly disposes of waste can ultimately be subject to liability under CERCLA is a very strong incentive, independent and apart from RICRA, to make sure that you're properly handling waste. So CERCLA is looking back and uh, saying, uh-oh, we had something go wrong. We have contamination as a, at a site. We now have a property where there are going to be cleanup costs. And here's who's going to be responsible to pay for it and how much they're going to be responsible to pay. So RICRA is trying to stop contaminated contamination of sites from happening. CERCLA is trying to clean them up when they do. When I talk about overlap, so RICRA does have provisions in it that allow RICRA to be used to compel the cleanup at some uh, sites that present an imminent and substantial endangerment. There are also requirements that those who hold RICRA permits clean up their uh, facilities as well. So there are some cleanup authorities contained within, uh, within RICRA. So it's not an entirely either or uh, binary, but the primary um, difference is RICRA is trying to prevent releases of hazardous substances that cause sites to become contaminated. And CERCLA is seeking to provide a mechanism and funding to clean up those sites if they do occur. That's a great explanation. You also mentioned that circular liability is strict and joint and several, and the statute's basically retroactive. What, what do those terms mean? So in terms of essentially strict means, it's not a defense. If, if there is evidence that an entity arranged for disposal of substances at a site or disposed of substances at a site or was an owner or operator, it, it's not a defense typically to come in and say, but I exercised reasonable care or I exercised due, due care. It, you're strictly liable if you fall within one of the categories of liable parties. Joint and several liability means that even if you are unable to establish divis divisibility, i.e. unable to show the portion of contamination at a site for which you should be held responsible, you can be liable for the entire or much more significant percentage of the cleanup costs at a site. So basically you can't get out of it. There are, I think, several, but only two or three defenses to CERCLA. I think one of them is Act of God. Do you know, you remember the other ones? 
So one really important exception that has been added through amendment to the statute, and I think addresses some of the fairness concerns your question hits at, is innocent purchaser liabilities. So I think if, for example, if a government ends up owning a site through tax defaults, they are no longer considered a potentially responsible party. There are also defenses you can establish if you undertake environmental due diligence before purchasing a property and document that. And then there's a nasty surprise that unexpectedly comes out. Um, you can have um, some limitation on your liability already, um, uh, already in place. So there are some defenses that have been added in part because of a concerns that CERCLA was unfair there are also, you know, recent Supreme Court decisions um, that have better defined when and how entities can establish divisibility and show that their liability should be um, limited at a site based on evidence that they have about the types of waste they contributed, the volume of the waste they contributed, et cetera. Over time, I, I think there have been some uh, tweaks both to the statute itself and then also to legal interpretations of it that have um, helped to make it a little more forgiving in application than it was as originally enacted. And as long as we're talking about defenses, there's another work around the Brownfields Amendments. Can you tell us about that? So the idea here is that one potentially unfortunate consequence of CERCLA is that it can create a real deterrent to reuse of sites because uh, purchasers are concerned about potentially creating uh, or ending up with liability for expensive, expensive cleanups. And what that means is you're essentially driving development onto virgin land um, that we might better be used for other purposes as opposed to reusing so-called brownfields, which can sometimes be less attractive properties, but ones you'd very much want to see rehabilitated and put back to productive, to productive use. So brownfields can... Uh, are incentives designed to encourage those looking at redevelopment of a site to give them assurances that if they end up owning the site, they'll be protected from liability. And the mechanisms to do that typically include engaging in environmental due diligence to understand the um, contamination, any contamination at the property, and to cooperate in uh, cleaning it up. Right. I think the uh, program also makes sure that a bona fide prospective purchaser doesn't have liability if it follows those, those requirements. Is that right? That's right. So if you can come in and tick the boxes, there are now guidelines for the steps one has to take. But if you tick those boxes, you can limit your liability prior to purchasing a property and have some comfort going in that you won't be inheriting um, a significant environmental liability related to a cleanup. Overall, what do you think the impact of CERCLA has been on our environment? That's an interesting question. So, and I can think about it in a few ways. So first, you know, I, I think CERCLA has been successful at cleaning up a significant number of particularly naughty sites, really large mega sites it's also, I think, shaped a little bit the legal landscape in environmental law in the sense that some of the furious litigation over the contours of CERCLA, when can EPA use unilateral administrative orders and 
when will it be, uh, can it be retroactive, um, et cetera, um, were kind of early and um, important um, decisions in the environmental law field. I think looking forward, if I can take your question and, and turn it around, I, I actually see CERCLA having some new um, salience and new life for a couple of reasons. One is that despite the fact that the tax that was initially authorized to fund CERCLA cleanups had expired, CERCLA has since been appropriated a significant amount of money at the federal level. So there is a real kind of new rush of activity to deal with some our existing retinue of contaminated sites. But the second is there are two really significant new challenges that I think CERCLA will be central to addressing. One relates to the cleanup of sites that have been contaminated with PFAS chemicals, I believe two of which have recently been designated as EP, by EPA as hazardous substances under CERCLA. And the second relates to climate change. So with respect to PFAS chemicals, there's an interesting aspect of CERCLA that so first of all, there's a, a, only a certain universe of substances that can bring a site uh, within the radar of circular under its auspices. Having added PFAS um, chemicals to that, which are quite widespread, um, will likely lead to a number of new sites being deemed circular sites and being cleaned up pursuant to its um, authority. But a second is that there are likely a significant number of sites that have already been cleaned up under CERCLA, but that also have unremedied PFAS contamination. And those sites may now be subject to additional cleanup through the triggering of reopeners. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. There's all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Professor Katrina Q. We've been talking about PFAS, and I think by PFAS you mean uh, per and polyfluorinated substances that are cancer causing and forever chemicals that uh, people are concerned about getting out. But that plays into Superfund. Can you explain how the Superfund sites work? Well, Superfund sites are designated. They're identified based on a set of criteria related in part to the risk of exposure from the chemicals uh, at the site. And then put on the designation of a site or putting it on the Superfund list makes it eligible for federal intervention and funding to help support the cleanup. Right. And so Superfund sites are known that because there are a significant amount of potentially responsible parties in there, sometimes in the thousands or tens of thousands. How does the court system go about handling and getting such an unwieldy group of people together to solve that kind of a problem? 
<laughs> it's sometimes not pretty, but my, my sense is that as the understandings of who is likely to be found liable and how much have become clear through litigation, it's become more possible for potentially responsible parties oftentimes to, to settle, to form consortia that kind of sort that out amongst them uh, amongst themselves um, instead of having to fight it out. But the, sh- the short answer is that if potentially responsible parties at a site cannot agree um, on their relative liability at a site, um, it can be litigated um, and um, courts will apply a whole host of factors, sometimes colloquially referred to as the gore factors, to assess um, the liability of different parties at a site. It gets very complicated because we've talked about the different categories of potentially responsible parties um, include entities or individuals who may have had very different types of involvement at a site. So someone who purchased a property after all of the contamination already occurred um, obviously has a much different relationship um, to the site than an entity that sent a significant volume of waste to the site. And that entity is going to have a very different responsibility from um, an entity that sent where is documented to have sent waste to the site, but it's not particularly toxic or the volumes were very low. So all of those things um, have to be weighed and sorted out. So there are a whole variety of factors that courts will consider in deciding the relative responsibility of parties at a site. The litigation to establish that liability tends to be drawn out and long. And as I mentioned, um, potentially responsible parties, um, it's become, I think, much more common for potentially responsible parties to agree among themselves um, about their relative responsibility for light uh, at a site. Right. Well, Katie, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. And I'd love to talk about insurance because insurance plays a large part in these cleanups. We're going to have to leave that to another session. So I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to share your final thoughts and your contact information on Circular. Great. So my um, final thought is probably to just put on the horizon a significant challenge for, uh, for Circla going forward which is that of the Superfund sites not on federal property, at least 60% are in places that under current conditions are vulnerable to flooding, storm surge, wildfires, or sea level rise. And as climate change worsens, that number of potentially vulnerable sites will likely increase. So thinking about how to make sure that existing sites that have already been closed aren't damaged as a result of climate change, thereby spreading contaminants all around anew, I think will be a significant challenge for CERCLA going forward. And I'm happy to hear from anyone at um, kkuh at law.pace.edu with follow-up questions. As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our guest, Katie Q, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Well, here's a few of my thoughts about today's topic. CERCLA has been a very productive statute over the last 40 years, and it has had some amendments and some changes to recognize some of the problems that it created, as Professor Q pointed out. But largely, it makes anyone who touches land that is contaminated responsible to clean up all of it and pay for all of it. And as brutal as that sounds, those have been the circumstances in some cases. So be careful. And get a lawyer if you're going to be buying property that might be contaminated. Well, that's it for my rant on today's topic. Let me know what you think. 
And if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.